Hello, my name is Quan Huyen, and I'm the author of Sparrow and the Razor Wire. I connected with Pablo because of my good friend, John Briggs. And you should connect with Pablo because he's going to make you feel connected. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, In my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way. And in that, I learn from him. This means every single person you ever interacted with has done something slightly different than every single other person and therefore has something to teach you. And you, my friend, have something to teach them. This means every conversation you have is both a chance to learn something and a chance to make an impact. Every networking event or conference you walk into is both a library and your stage. Your network is your personal Google and you are a part of everyone's Wikipedia. My name is Pablo Gonzalez, and I am your Chief Executive Connector. Follow me as we meet people in my walks. Find out what we can learn from them, what they've learned from others, and what made them want to connect so you can learn to gain and give value to others in all of your interactions. I am terrible at asking for stuff, but if you want to do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Let me know what you've learned from each episode, or at the very least, Hit me up if I can ever be of service or any kind of value to you. Now, without further ado, let's get connected. Welcome to the Chief Executive Connector Podcast. I am Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector, and today we have a really, really interesting guest. He is somebody that got introduced to me by somebody I really, really, really respect, John Briggs. And he told me that Quan, who you'll meet in a second, has a fascinating story. He is the author of Sparrow in the Razor Wire. He's the program manager of Defy Ventures and the CEO of Jay Janitors. And he is a living, walking, breathing illustration that you can always grow, you can always find hope, you can always find joy, no matter in any situation you're in. And I've been super, super inspired by this story. And because of that, it is an honor to have you here, Quan. Welcome, Quan Huynh. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you, Pablo, for having me. And thank you for the warm introduction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, I consider myself a hype man, right? So if I can't if I can't intro somebody in an interesting way, I'm I'm slacking out here, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean it, man. You know, like I all of that stuff's from the heart, right, Quan? So listen, as you know, the format of this podcast it's a lot about you know connecting and growth and, and all this stuff. And and my main thesis of how quickly people are able to connect is. Number one, adding value to each other's lives, which I think your story has a ton of value for a lot of people out there. And two, a really quick way to do that is to, to share a vulnerability so that the listener who's with us today, you know, sees you as a, as a human like them, doesn't see you as this like author that's on this track and you've been through this like epic odyssey, right? So I'd love to ask you, what are you, what are you struggling with these days? What are you feeling vulnerable about? Uh... Well, I, as you stated, my, my book is finished. It's about to be published. And uh, yet I'm still wondering, is this going to provide value for who I wrote it for? Is this book going to be relevant? Is the book, um, is the book good? Is it gonna, is it gonna, um, I, I wrote it to, to make, try to make an impact for men that are doing long or lifetime sentences in prison. And in it, I share with them how did I come to my own sense of inner freedom before I was ever uh, 
parole from my life sentence. But then there's always a part of me, what are the guys going to think in there when they read this? Is this going to resonate with them? Can I really help them? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a small story that I have to remind myself, yes, it will help them. I was able to help men uh, when I was in prison. And I think I, I, I put my heart, my soul into this book. And I'm, I, I'd like to say that I can help them in some small way super super universal right like i find that i ask this question to everybody and i would say that about 60 to 70 percent of people you know obviously it's not people that are trying to help men in prison always but it's always that imposter syndrome right it's always that idea of like i've been doing this work i know you know i've seen the empirical evidence that it works with people but every time i put it out there in any kind of different way i always wonder if it's actually valuable if there's real value in this thing right so, you know, I, I think that's that's one of the most universal things. And I purposely didn't frame your story as somebody who's been in, in that was in life sentence in prison doing hard time, because I, I, I kind of want to talk this out with you. But, you know, s- spoiler alert, you had a life sentence for murder. You went to correctional facilities, right? Like I, I would and, and you have now come out the other side and you've had this really incredible rebirth that started while you were inside the system. And that's the topic of your book. But I would love to, if you could just give me a little bit of your background and kind of how you ended up getting a life sentence, you know, however you want to, however you want to talk about it. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in Provo, Utah. And uh, growing up there as a young boy, I never felt like I I fit in. We were the only um, family that was Vietnamese in that area for, uh, for a while growing up. And that's where I would have to say the beginning seeds of my um, identity and acceptance issues came into play. We moved out here to California when my father got diagnosed with leukemia uh, when I was 10 years old. And uh, that was the first time that I went to school with other Vietnamese kids. But I also felt like I didn't fit in with them because many of them accused me of being whitewashed because I couldn't speak uh, Vietnamese well. A lot of them couldn't speak English well at the time. And so there was just always this part of me that didn't feel like I fit in, something's wrong with me. Uh, My father passes away from leukemia when I was 13 and that just destroyed my life. Um, Yeah, uh, I, I rebelled against God, I rebelled against my mother, I was angry at my father. And I just found some sense of acceptance with kids that, that were already starting to get in trouble. And that just led, one thing led to another. At the age of 17, I was arrested for the first time, got involved with a very violent Vietnamese gang, multiple times in and out of uh, correctional institutions. I've done a total of 22 years of my life behind bars. In 1999, I shot and killed a, uh, another human being by the name of Min Nguyen. I was tried for the death penalty, but because I lied at trial, I coached witnesses, I was ultimately found guilty of second degree murder uh, and given a 15 year to life sentence. And that's how I ended up in prison with a life sentence. Incredible, man. Um, You know, so when I read your story, which by the way is beautifully written, right? Like I, I think you are a very good author in my opinion, right? Like I've never... I have a hard time reading books. I listen to a lot of books and never have I ever like read a, read a book on my phone. Right. So like kudos to you for, for this beautifully woven story. Thank you. But, but I see in it, man, 
I relate to it so much, right? Like, like you're talking about that you're wanting to help men in prison. We're going to, we're going to get to to that part of it, but I, I see these very universal themes that that can help a lot of people. And we're going to get to that, but just in your, in your origin story, I also grew up as an outsider everywhere, right? That I, as, as the, the white Hispanic guy, right? Like I'm the most American person in my family, but my family's super, super, super Hispanic. And so am I. And then I grew up in Miami. That is, you know, a reasonable like middle ground between Latin America and the US. But I always felt more Hispanic than my sons of Cuban friends and more American than my my Venezuelan family, right? And and we also moved around early in life as well. And I remember when I when I got to high school, and this is something I haven't, I really don't speak about it very much because it's it's kind of this weird period of my life, but right around 15, you know, right, I'd say 14, 15, I got like into punk rock because I just wanted to rebel against everything. And then mm-hmm. I went straight into, okay, I want to be a thug, right? Hip hop culture is cool. Um, there are all these things. I, I went to a private school. I had a friend that had, that had friends in public schools and they weren't in gangs, but they had crews, right? Like writing crews and, and, and whatever. And at that point, it felt like every other weekend, I was in a scenario where I could have gotten involved in, in anything, right? Until my best mm-hmm. friend got jumped. And then all of a sudden there were gangs involved. And we had this like crossroads scenario where like half of us decided to just go further into that world. And half of us were just like, man, we just don't come from this. Like, why are we, why are we falling deeper into this? And I had all these amazing people around my life. It sounds like the loss of your father took away a major balancing force in your life that then allowed you to go kind of deeper into this, into this sense of acceptance and community and recognition for something that was on the darker side of things as opposed to going into positive light. Do you think that do you think that if your dad would have been around, maybe that would have been enough to like stop you from just falling off that precipice? I I would have to say yes. Like what I think about it, I mean he was the anchor for the family. Um like I share in my book, he's the person that answered all of my life's questions. I mean, from eight years old on, he was going in and out of the hospital and he passes away when I was 13. So when I look back on those years, I had to figure out what it meant to be a man. And I figured it out all wrong for 25 years after that, I would have to say. Then I started trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man? So yeah, I would have to say yes, uh, absolutely. My father would have never... Um, I don't think I would have ever felt the need to find so much acceptance outside my home or, or within my own personal life if he had been around. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. And then, and then you also have this moment where like your brother gets beat up and you didn't jump in. So there was a moment that was reinforced like, listen, man, when things are tough, you got to ju- jump into the fight yeah. or something along those lines, right? Yeah. Which doesn't necessarily put you down a bad path. But then you started off in juvie, but you turned 18 and immediately got sent to the clink, right? Like you got, you got sent to, yeah. to the big leagues and you have these like really sh- just terrifying moments of seeing this violence and, and, and having to make peace with that and just buy into it because that's the environment that you're in, right? Can you kind of, when you're seeing this guy get jumped in prison for snitching and you're seeing this dude jump off of like a top bunk and, and, and step on his head and, and make these like disgusting noises. You're trying to like make sense of this, right? Like where in these really dark moments, where did your, your inner compass, did it tell you, I don't belong here, but I don't have a choice. Did it tell you I do belong here because I'm a bad person. What was your inner talk at that point? 
Uh, I, it was, I don't belong here, but I want to fit in. I, I can't let them know that I'm terrified. I cannot let them know that, um, that I don't fit in because I don't want any of this to happen ever to me. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, probably the best way I would have to describe it. That makes sense. You're the, you're the quintessential like good soul trapped in a bad situation. And I would have to say, like most people are, I would have, that's what I would have to say. Tell me about like, that. I, well, I think when I look back on my gang days, when I look back on even the violent days in, in jail or in prison, most of us that acted out violently were probably just seeking acceptance in some way. But unfortunately, violence has, is the way that we believe that it was. Um, when I look back on an example is during my gang days, let's say I, I get in an argument with my girlfriend or something, and then I'll just pick up my friend. And instead of just being able to process and then say, hey, I have a bad day. This is what me and my girlfriend talked about. You know, things that, that, that men can do. Back then, it was like, okay, I don't talk about it. I get a gun. He gets a gun. We just go and we don't talk about it. All these emotions are going on inside me. I step into a pool hall. I step into a club. And I'm looking for a reason to take out all of this energy onto somebody to just prove that I'm a man or to prove that to, so I don't sit with these emotions. I have a way of getting them out. And I just see that was played over and over a lot inside prison. And then later on, actually, when I started to, I would have to say, start to become aware of my own um, my own process and my own motivations and my, my behaviors, I saw it in, in the men around me of just how they interacted with the world through uh, this inability to express emotion in a healthy way. So, I mean, seeing that and, and, and seeing the men around me and thinking of the times during the violence of juvenile hall in the county jails, when we were all young, we just felt, I am sure every single man, every time before they get into a riot or before they get in a fight, it's like, I would have to say the vast majority did not want to fight or act out, but they believed this is the only way to gain some sense of acceptance or maybe to fight off fear or to show that they are what it is to be what we believe the man in, in prison or inside the, the facilities at the time. It makes a lot of sense to me, man, that it reminds me of something that Brene Brown says. Are you, are you familiar with Brene Brown and her work? It's amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like how she says that everybody's doing the best they can with what they got or at least everybody believes they are. Yeah. And to me, what you're saying extends to, you know, these inmates in prison, these kids in juvenile hall, circumstances in their life happen to them in a certain way to which they're like, okay, well, the answer to this, you know, the answer to X is, is Y, right? Like, and, 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 and when you are brought up in that environment and it gets reinforced that violence is the answer or, you know, that saying of like men who hurt, hurt others, right? Like, when, yeah. when, when that gets constantly reinforced, plus you get in this pressure cooker that is, okay, now you can't go anywhere, right? Like now you're actually locked up. So you really have to do this uh, or else there's there's some serious, serious physical dangerous repercussions. And that continues to get ingrained. To me, it's the same thing, right? Like it's like they're doing the best they can with what they've got. But what they've got is this like really grim reality of a lack of a mentor in their life that could have brought them, you know, the right way. And a surplus of people in their life that give them this negative reinforcement for, or positive reinforcement for negative behavior. Mm -hmm. Or giving them a, 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 a skewed equation where, you know, they're putting it in, but it's not the, the right equation. Totally. Um, totally. 
And and you basically just described the circumstances in which then drove you to kill this guy, right? Like that, like you were you were coming off of a a fight with a girlfriend or a breakup or something like that, and you were at a nightclub in a in a in a bad mood, and then that's how it escalated, right? Yeah, I was actually turned down for a oh, um, that's right a management position, uh, and I guess up to that point in my life, I um, I just felt like what I want something to go right in my life for once, and when they asked me to take um, the management position test, but it was done through um, Gallup at the time, just before the, the, the fame of their strength finder studies, I was working at Gallup and it's a personality-based test. So when it came back and I said, I am not a fit, that, that was what they told me. They said, we're sorry, but you are not a fit. Um, I think that just touched that core part of me that just somehow felt I never fit, I won't ever fit in, um, I won't be accepted. And, so I just didn't, and of course, like, what did I do at the time? Typical is just I, I drowned those emotions with alcohol, didn't talk about it, and I just stuffed it down into a dark corner and uh, waited for an opportunity to take it out on, on someone, just to just be able to vent and let it out. Yeah, just in, in your language, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, a test tells you that you don't fit, but you've had 10 years of reinforcement saying that when you're violent, you fit in with a certain group of people so at least that sense of belonging. Yeah. Is like I might fail in this part of my life, but yeah. I can excel in this part. And I'm going to make sure uh, it was something that was brought up over and over my board here. Like I wasn't involved in the fight. I wasn't even in the car that was involved in the fight. Like, why did I feel this need to do it? And I told him because that's exactly how I felt. I felt like a failure over here for not getting this management position, not fitting in. But I know where I can fit in. And this is how I'm going to make sure I fit in and, and be able to have people talk about it and have people gain, a, like, I guess, regain my, my sense of reputation, my distorted sense of reputation. Yeah. Powerful, man. So, so then, so this happens, you go back into the system, you're there for, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the timing is, right? But you are, you're, you're living this life of, of violence and just really hard stuff. And I'm, I don't mean like hard, like difficult. I mean like hard, like you're a hard dude, right? <laughs> like on the streets. Um, how did you start to change the narrative inside of your mind that you don't have to be this person, that you can be something else, even though you're in this dire situation? You know, you, you in your head are in prison for life, right? Yes. Yet you started to change the narrative inside your head that told you I can be something different. Life doesn't have to be like that. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, it was about the 10, 12 years into my prison sentence. Like even after I was given the life sentence, I would have to say like I had no true sense of remorse. It was always, well, um, the, the narrative I told myself in my head or the script I, I gave myself was it was my life or theirs, you know, the, um, that's what they get for getting caught slipping. That's what gang members do. All of that tied in. But then several things happened. And, and it wasn't like just one thing that suddenly the light bulb came out. But several things happened. Like my niece was born and she looked like the spitting image of like my brother. If he was a girl, like uh, it just reminded me of like my little brother. She looked exactly like my brother. And it just took me back to like childhood. My, my paternal grandfather passes away. And it was just like, I started thinking about like my own father's life around that time. I think I was 30 something. And I started thinking like, you know what, like what did my father create in his 38 years on earth? 
like how did he affect so many people in a good way and, and, and how is he so impactful? And then I contrasted that with my own life, you know, of destruction and death and, and how did I destroy so much? Whereas my father came to this country to build things and, and, to, and to make connections with people and to build the community up. And here I, here I was, I destroyed things all around me. And it was pretty sobering. Um, also, I have always been a bookworm. And uh, at that time, I was really into all different business books. But then reading one book to another, somehow I started, uh, I ended up on the books of the saints. It was in the, the books of the saints. And, and they talk about legacies and how they made impacts. But what really resonated with me about each of their stories were each of these saints were also very flawed human beings at one time in their lives. And that's what I started searching. And I realized, wait, um, if these men were also flawed and were able to build legacies, I would like to say, hopefully I could try to uh, salvage some type of legacy for my life, even if I'm here in prison. And even if I can die in here, um, maybe I could try to leave some legacy. And that's where like the, the small spark, I would say, began. So filling my head with these readings, then I started getting fascinated with like personal development uh, um, and mindfulness and all these other books. And I started trying to practice it to myself. And um, it was just one day on the prison yard. Uh, I was standing there by the fence and um, uh, I just had to start like, why does prison have to be punishment? And why do I have to view it that way? And I realized I don't have to view it this way. Like I could look at this as a place where I could rebuild myself and leave a legacy and touch people and um, just that small thinking that small subtle shift in thinking it made all the difference in the world and like i shared in some talks it was just you know that morning it was early morning when i had that thought the sun came up over the hills and i felt the warmth from it and on the individual blades of grass i saw the dew and up above me in the razor wire i heard a sparrow chirping and i tell people it probably been chirping 10, 12 years of my sentence, and I never once heard it. But that day, I, I looked up and I saw him, and he was chirping. And um, from that day, prison no longer was this harsh, cold, ugly place, but it became a place where of such beauty um, and such meaning for me and, and being able to connect with other human beings that were along on their own journeys, you know, and it made me realize, man, there's men that had been on this path long before me, and I never once recognized them. Or I see men that are way behind on their journey and haven't yet awakened. And it was just became a place where, I don't know, I would have to say I began to, to rebuild and remake myself. You say that so beautifully, man. Like you, in that parable or that story or, or however, however you want to frame it, there's so many life lessons, right? There is the, the life lesson that your life depends on the lens that you view it from, right? And no matter no matter what, you don't have to change your life immediately, but as long as you change your lens and you start seeing it that way, it, it, it makes a profound difference on the way that you process your decisions, you move forward, things of that nature. I also hear the idea that in the absence of person-to-person -person mentorship, and this is something that I'm really high on, is content, right? Like a book is content that you can learn from and you can always, you can always learn from other people based on books and, and, and you can have the mentorship. I don't have to have a relationship with Gary Vee to consider him my mentor because I consume his content all the time, right? And now there is so much more content out there and so many other mediums of absorbing it 
right? From books to podcasts, to audiobooks, to YouTube channels, to, to Instagram, whatever it is, right? Like those things are out there and people can take those lessons learned. And, and for me, kind of at a, at, at a similar time in life, I was also in my mid thirties when the complete opposite happened that I'm reading the biography of Mao, right? Like Chairman Mao of China. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading, you know, I, I didn't get through it, right? It's a book like this thick. Uh, like I said, I'm not the best reader ever, but I'm probably about like a quarter of the way through it. And he still, and he was like 33 at the time and was still this total loser. And then even though he wasn't a good dude, he became the, like the most, one of the most powerful people in the world. That was an aha moment for me, opposite mm-hmm. of you, right? Like, like the saints may have been flawed. I can be flawed and still be good. I was like, this guy was a terrible dude and a loser and look how powerful he became. I can, I can apply something here and make yeah. something out of my life. And that was a watershed moment for me. And then the thing that I liked the best is you then sought solace and sought inspiration in seeing the value in others. You saw these men around you that had had this experience and you decided that, you know, to, for you to improve, you could honor these experiences and you could learn from them as well. And that's at the core of this podcast, which is the idea that every man I meet is some way my superior and in that I can learn from them. Yeah. Can you tell me, once you had this realization, what did you start doing in, in the prison system that started to, you know, how did you start to act on this? Sure. Um, it's funny you were talking about like um, different mentors and searching because there were certain mentors, like on a prison yard, about 4,000 men. There's always somebody that uh, one or two guys that I could get to understand their mind and get to learn from them. So I would search those men out. But then I also realized, like you stated, books, books from these saints or writings from um, like business leaders. Like what better way to understand and get an intimate glimpse of how they see the world than to see it through their writing. And that's how I, I started approaching each of these books that I've read. Then... I had this habit that I would highlight the, the stuff that I felt was meaningful. That after I finished the book, I go back and I write down to reinforce in this notebook I had each of the quotes or, or, or passages or sentences that I felt was powerful. And I reinforced that. So I just had this blue notebook of powerful reminders for myself of how I want to aspire to treat others or how I want to view myself or view the world. And, um, yeah, that, that's how it began. And I love it. I, then, just, I just want to reinforce something there. And it's the mm-hmm. idea that you are what you eat, right? Like you are what you consume, right? Like if you are, if you are consuming these books, then, then you're creating this framework of things to feed your mind that then if you can take action on it, right? If you can, if you can internalize it in a way that I'm not just reading this book for entertainment, I'm reading this book to find an answer or whatever content or whatever, write it down and then start to work, work on that, it's something anybody can do, right? Like if you could do it in that situation, our friend that's listening right now that may be imprisoned or may you know, have had a horrible case of abuse in their past that, that they're having a hard time overcoming, they can dive into this, this content to fill their heads and start using that as the building blocks to build themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like just because writing it down and reinforcing, does that mean it, it, it happened for me overnight? Yeah. I mean, there were things that I aspired, like uh, being able to slow down my thoughts and respond in a conflict in a, in a gentle uh, but firm way, you know, and I, there were days that I would fail or I would get, um, I would retort to somebody harshly. Then I would go back to my bunk that night and I would put in my journal, you know, things I, 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 I realized I had to, because to address like my own issue of 
feeling worthless inside or I don't fit in, then I always made it a habit to affirm myself, like things I did well that day and then things I could have improved on. So even in those small failures of every day, I realized I could improve incrementally. And that's how it began this process of slowing things down for myself, um, approaching each day or each man or even each conflict as a learning lesson. Here's an opportunity that God, the universe has opened up for me. Find my lesson today. Learn from them today. This is how I want to apply my life. And that's how I approach each day. So it, it's, it's almost every morning I woke up with a curious wonder on the world of what is this day going to do for me in prison? It's not like, crap, another day in prison, I'm going to die here. It was more, what can I find out and discover for myself or about humanity or about my journey today? And that's just how it became. It became almost like a, an adventure in its own small little world. It's in its own corner of where we were all forgotten. But that is, I, I found a lot of beauty during that time. That's amazing, man. And again, you're uncovering another like universal truth that I'm starting to, that is starting to dawn on me. And it's that approaching things with curiosity is the answer to so many ills, right? Like, like I, I, from the idea of whatever situation you're in, how can you be curious about what you can learn from it to whatever conversation you're about to get into, instead of thinking, what do I think of this person? You can, you can approach it from the standpoint of like, what can I learn from this person? Right? Like Mm -hmm. I got a good buddy, Jerry McNamara. That's like live in wonder, right? Like if you live in wonder and you live in curiosity, then you can always make the best of the situation. At what point did you start feeling like you were a changed person? And at what point did you start feeling like you were making an impact? Uh, I think the first time that I realized that I was a changed person was I was inside a workshop. Um, we were, I was a facilitator for this organization called the Alternatives to Violence Project. And an outside volunteer comes up to me and it's, a, a, it's like this, she seemed like the most gentle, wise soul. She sat down, it was like the third day of the workshop, and she says, I want to know what your secret is. Like, how do you embody such peace? And I it just took me by surprise. Like, what do you mean? I don't feel peaceful inside. And she goes, yeah. So it was that night during the journals. And I go back and I started looking back at my previous journal entries of where I began. And I saw the progression. Or when I look back, and by that time it had been a, a journal entry I wrote like two years previously. And I saw the progression of my thoughts of, hey, I want to be able to do this to actually suddenly, two years later, I'm, it's not a, I want to do this, I'm already practicing this and I am doing it. So that's where I started seeing, I realized, crap, this is, this, I have made progress. I saw the impact I made when inside groups, I shared of my own vulnerability or I shared of my own struggles. And then men would come back to me on the yard and ask me to help them with their own troubles. Or they'll share with me like, hey, what you said today made me really think about this time. And I need to reach out to my family or I need to uh, reconcile this situation um, in the dorm or even things like that. And it made me realize, oh, you know what? My words can help build people up or tear them down. Like this is still how I can make an impact. Also, when I started to come to terms with my father's death. It was like, you know, my father died when I was 13. I would say I did not even begin the grieving process for 25 years. When I started to come to terms with that death, and um, then of course I get fascinated with books on grieving, loss, uh, questions about like why why people die. And that also gave me a, a deeper 
appreciation for my faith and my journey. And then I put together a syllabus and we created a grief and loss group. Um, I realized, okay, grief and loss does, is not just death, but it's, you know, and I realized around me, all these men are suffering from grief and loss, whether it's the loss of their dreams, the loss of a loved one, loss of a wife or children or loss of friendships because they are moved from one prison to another. They face all different types of, of grief and loss all day long and they have no, no place to process it. The signups and the groups when we facilitated it, I saw the impact right away and I realized, you know what, I can make an impact while in here during prison and this is how I'm going to do it. And that's just the way I started approaching life. Like, yes, I've been given this gift. Now I have to share it. That's part of passing this on. And this is, this is how I pass it on. I love it, man. I love it. You know, you, again, I, I try to tease out like the, like, like bullet point things that I'm taking away. Right. And number one is the idea that you just, displayed the whole vulnerability for connection thing, right? <laughs> if you shared something inside a group and you were brave enough to share it, people would approach you later on and say, hey man, you know, can you help me, right? Like I, I, I really, really believe in the idea that people don't connect or do business or follow or admire people that they understand. They connect, believe, and do business with people that they feel understands them. And if you mm -hmm. can, you know, express, express a vulnerability and they you know, they feel like, oh my God, I have that same vulnerability. Now they are more likely to be like, I can trust this dude, right? Because he gets me. Um, and then the other part that I love is, you know, a big part of my life has been forming groups, right? My whole life was set on the path that I'm on of just really believing that community is the future of business development and the future of everything because I started forming these like young professional groups for charities and just the power of, of uniting people into a room that are kind of in the same walk of life and the, and the, and the beautiful alchemy that comes out of all that stuff is really powerful. And I, and the way I understand that, that, that is kind of how you were able to remake yourself, right? Like being a part of these different groups, starting the grief group, mm -hmm. being seen as a leader, right? Like in a, in, a, in a world where, you know, you're treated as a number or whatever now, because you are the leader of a group and you have an audience and it's, and it's for the greater good, the perception of who you are changes. And I would imagine that that must have played a role in, in your parole hearings and stuff like that, right? Is that, is that kind of accurate? Yeah, um, it did. Um, I think when I went into the parole board, I mean, even with, we're talking about vulnerability and sharing and, you know, I had to go back and re-examine like each of the I would have to say the, um, the script that I had told myself and how it was fake or how um, it was distorted and removing all of that and re trying to rebuild myself. I mean, I, I, I even remember the time when I was in there and I was still in there. This is the beginning part of the search for my sense of identity and then realizing, you know what? Everything in my life up to this point has been fake. Like I'm a total fake whether it's the gang member, the hustler, um, who I am as a person, I only did all this to just impress others or, or to just be accepted or to feel like I'm actually somebody. But all of these things are fake. And there was a deep part of me that did not want to let that go because I think they just said, like, you know, any sense of identity, no matter how fake, was better than no sense of identity. But I think just like the books I was reading and the people I was surrounding myself with, it gave me the courage to just try to move forward with it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's why I would have to say that the rebuilding of my identity came into to play. And then from there, it was just, okay, 
now we can make an impact with the victims awareness groups and then having not only giving a place for men to support and uh, or support themselves and to feel heard but then how can i push this envelope to get them to come to a, a place of also self-acceptance and also examining their own identities and the scripts that they've told themselves which made it very I have to say I made a lot of men around me uncomfortable when I tried to reflect back, but the ones that were ready were the ones that I was able to help go to the parole board and get found suitable. So just to give you context, the California prison system did not parole one single lifetime prisoner between 1977 to 2007. A whole 30 year window went where whether you had a five to life sentence, 15 to life, they were not paroling. So the belief was, we will never ever get out of prison, whether it's a five to life sentence or a 99 year to life sentence. A life sentence is a life sentence. Like even governors said, the only way that a life prisoner gets out is through a pine box. You know, that was stated. And so that was the common belief. There was a landmark ruling in 2007 that came down that gave the first people a chance to parole. But it was like, when I, when I read it, I go, okay, this doesn't apply to me. This is somebody that, uh, this applies to people that are, in their 60s, have done 30, 40 odd years and have a perfect prison sentence, had never had never got arrested before. So it was like, you could check off all the boxes of why I did not apply. They said people that should never be uh, uh, paroled should are gang members, has multiple convictions, a horrible prison record. I fell under all those categories. But something just came up where the uh, one of the men had shared with me his prison hearing transcripts and I looked at it as a way to, um, so in 2007, a landmark ruling came down, um, a woman prisoner that had argued it all the way to the Supreme Court that what's the difference between a life sentence and a life without the possibility of a parole sentence. So they actually came back and ruled in her favor, but they laid out all these parameters of who should be able to qualify for getting a parole date at the board. And I fell under... Um, like they said, like, okay, if you've pursued higher education, if you've uh, never been arrested, if you have a perfect prison record, and people that should never be considered uh, violent, uh, multiple arrests, uh, multiple uh, write-ups while in prison, I fell under every single category of why you should never get out. But then, yet, I had discovered this sense of freedom, and I wanted to share it with the guys, somehow... You know, fate, the world, the universe, God opened it up. And um, one of the men shared with me a prison hearing transcript. So the transcripts are verbatim what happens inside the parole hearing. And the man shared with me, and at that time, men in prison don't share parole hearing transcripts because it has all the deep, dark, ugly secrets of your hearing. And it will go against what I found right away what he told me what he was in prison for and what happened inside the parole hearings were totally different than what actually transpired of what he said and what was read into the record. So there was always this um, disconnect. And I realized it's all, it also ties into the script that we tell ourselves of, I'm a good person, I'm not that bad. So I sat with the man and we started going through the transcripts. People asked like, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, Quan's helping me prepare for the parole hearing. Because this was a guy that had might qualify under the parameters of who can, because he had a perfect prison record. 
but what I saw inside his hearings is he had no ownership of his circumstances. He took no sense of personal responsibility in what he did. And I was big on personal responsibility from a lot of books I was reading and I was trying to practice it in my own life. And I was like, this is what they're looking for. This is what makes you human, like sharing of your vulnerability and, and connecting with them as human beings. Let them see you as a human being. It doesn't matter what you did, you're already here. People said that I had done crazy. They said, how can Quan help you go home when he's never even been to the board? So they just wrote us off as crazy. Well, one of the first guys that I sat with went to the pro board and was found suitable. And suddenly the floodgates opened where men just came to sit with me like, okay, can you also help me? Um, so I know their motivation in sitting with me is to go home, which is fine. And my motivation though was, you know what? I've discovered this amazing secret to inner freedom already. And I want to help coach to get them there. Yes, if they go home or not, that's a byproduct. But regardless, if they're found not suitable, I think I want to help them find this same sense of inner freedom that I have. And so that was my motivation, which I, I never told them. But um, yeah, so that's, I just began this process of helping men find their freedom in there. And, you know, yes, helping men find their freedom to the board, but my purpose is helping men find their own inner freedom before they even go to the board to own it and just find a sense of, like, liberation that I had inside my own soul, I would have to say. But it became difficult. I mean, like, there were men that would sit there, and when, I'm, uh, when I start reflecting back or I call them on it, then they say, no, nope, I'm not doing this. You don't know what you're doing, and that's fine. But the, the men that really, I would have to say, were courageous and owned up and started exploring those were the men that um, some were found suitable, some were not. But I wanted to say those are the men that did find their sense of freedom before they came home. And that's part of the, re the motivation for the book. Like, how can, I, how can I do this? You know what? I helped maybe 8, 10, 12 men found, get found suitable during that four or five-year window, which is not an insignificant amount. But then why couldn't I do it on a bigger level? by just sharing of my own vulnerability and, and struggles with it on a bigger scale. And that's the, that's the reason uh, I wrote the book. Like I'm hoping that I could, sh I could share with the men the same way that I was able to help them in prison. Amazing, dude. Amazing. Like you are, you are, I mean, I had read this story and everything and going into this, I was pumped for this conversation. But now as we have this conversation, like you're a case study for everything I believe in, man. Like, you know, like the, from vulnerability leading to connection, to finding your purpose through service, to then realizing that if you're going to put your service at scale, you need to create a piece of content that can be distributed to as much as possible. Mm -hmm. To me is, you know, like kind of everything my life stands for right now, man. So it's, it's fascinating to me to have this conversation with you, man. And I want to ask you this question. You said that you looked back at yourself and everything was fake. Who are you now? Like what is real? Who am I now is I would have to say the person that like I, when I went back, I was rebreaking everything down. It, I had to go back and rebuild that broken young boy and then looking at, okay, what does God have for me today to build on? What does God have for me now to build on? Like that's how I, I still look at the world with curiosity and, 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 you know, wondering like a, what, what's the next path that's going to open up? So I would have to still say, like, who am I today? Like, yes, I'm still a child of God, and, and, and I'm just looking to see what's next for me and how can I be, you know, how can I continue to be an instrument of his peace for the world? It's amazing. And you are, you know, you are fulfilling that instrument as an author, 
you are, what, what does Defy Ventures do? Can you kind of explain what Defy Ventures do sure. and how important that is? Yeah, so Defy Ventures is a nonprofit that helps uh, men and women uh, transform their lives. It's men and women with criminal histories uh, to basically transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I get to... I get to go into prison. I get to, um, we get to go in like they're, they're high energy, high, uh, well, before we could go into prison pre COVID, we went into prison and we give them this framework of entrepreneurship and how to rebuild. I mean, how to build a business, but I think the program is called CEO of your new life because they could use those same lessons to rebuild their lives. Um, and I work in the capacity of the post-release program manager. So when they come home, I get to be the first one to welcome them home and help support them in their reentry process. Amazing, man. And it's, you know, it's biblical in the sense that you are teaching a man how to fish, right? Because you are teaching them entrepreneurship. You're not teaching them how to go get a job and go serve someone else. But, to, yes, to but even, even in the, even if to go get the job, like just the journey of entrepreneurship itself you know, the lessons of grit, resiliency, yes. pivoting, being okay with failure. Yes. These lend to even be great employees. So even if they don't go on to create a business, those same lessons that they learned through our program and in their journey, we, I, I get them to reframe it, to apply out here. Okay, you know what to do. You know uh, uh, you're okay. It's okay if you go on 50 interviews and they all turn you down. That's okay. Right, because you're gonna learn from each one. Right? What do we say at Defy? You gotta fail, and you, you gotta fail fast, and you can learn from it. So this is this is what we do, right? And so th those are lessons I continue to reinforce in them. And um, yeah, so it, it's it's an honor to be able to be in that position and, and to help the men and women that are coming home. It's very cool, man. So I, you know, in my in all my podcasts, I have this like rapid fire round of questions at the end. But I feel like our whole conversation has been speaking about all the things that I want to speak about in that, right? Like, like I asked people about like, what did you believe in your twenties that you don't believe anymore? You know, this has been a case study in that, um, what kind of content you're into and the role has played in your life. I think we've hit that. Is there any book or any piece of content or any, anything right now that is content related that's really inspiring you that you can share or, 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 or something to recommend? Well, uh, because, you know, with COVID, we went back to uh, everything's uh, virtual. Most of our events are virtual. And so one of the first questions I asked myself was, what was it like for us in prison when we went on a lockdown? And then what was important for people? And I realized what was important for people was, especially when the lockdown's over, we wanted to feel connected. So we go to the yard, the guys would catch up. And then real, uh, understanding that psyche and that mindset and how could I apply it out here? So we had created a, a book club where we would discuss a book, but the book is only used as the backdrop. We're not discussing the book, but the book is only the vehicle to spark discussion. And we read it for like a whole month and we just come together. This, uh, uh, like right now, every Monday at four to five, and we just read a book together as a community. And I saw right away what it did for our volunteers that had never experienced what a lockdown or a quarantine was. And I saw that our um, entrepreneurs in training, the ones that have come home, not to say that they liked it, but they kind of knew, okay, I know how this process can go. And so then, but during that process, I went actually back to reading certain books that I, I read in prison. So um, yeah, the first book we read was The Alchemist. This oh. month we are reading um, The Prophet. Uh, yeah, so The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And that was a book that I always loved to read. It was just packed with so much stuff. And 
So, I mean, that's the one, that's the, the book right now that is. Um, the Prophet by Kaluga yeah. Brandon? K- Khalil uh, Gabran. Okay. Khalil, yeah. I'm just writing this down so I can, uh, Khalil Gabran, I'll find that, man. So is that kind of like, a, is it a parable like The Alchemist also? No, The Alchemist was the parable. Khalil Gabran, his writing is more poetic. You'll see, it's, it's very thin. Um, there's not a lot of pages also, but it's just packed with, so how I, in fact, it's right here. So how I read it, my, my, mine in prison was highlighted everywhere, right? So there's different chapters like on love, on pleasure, on beauty, on religion, on joy and sorrow, on crime and punishment. And what I did, like some certain days in prison, I go, okay, I'm filling in a funk. Let me see what the universe wants me to reflect on today. And I just opened the chapter and let me see, okay, what chapter are we? And it says, uh, speak to us of good and evil. And I just read this chapter on good and evil and I would reflect on it. And that was like, that's just like my little thing to give me my, my daily dose of inspiration. So I love that's, it, man. What that's what I'm doing right now. That's amazing. Um, so before I ask you my last question, right, I'm going to link to your website here. I'm going to link to Sparrow on the Razor Wire for your book, your Instagram handles, whatever. Uh, I'm going to have that all in there. Uh, I feel like I want to just open up the, the stage for you to maybe tell, tell our listener that's hanging out with us right now. How can they help men that were in your position or women that were in your position? Is there, is there any recommendation if they, if, if they want to provide hope for somebody that's been locked up, that's, that's devoid of hope and, and wants to get involved in one of these programs? Do you have any recommendation to get involved in something like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, see, they, they, could, they could volunteer at plenty of organizations to, to help. Um, I mean, like they, they could reach out to Defy Ventures to go into prison. There's mm-hmm. other uh, organizations that are going into prison. They could also support my book launch because what I'm doing is for every book that's sold, I am donating one to a person in prison because I realize, you know, the book is written for people that are in prison, but they are not my customers. There's no way for, for them to um, receive a book. Mm. And I, 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 it did not feel right or sit well in my gut to market the book to families of the incarcerated, especially many of them are also um, struggling financially as it is so that's why i said you know what i think the best way is to market my book that way you know basically a buy one get one um so yeah that's 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 a way they could help that's awesome man and i highly encourage it. it's an amazing book super inspirational Quan, i man i, I just I, before i ask my last question i just i really want to acknowledge i want to acknowledge you man like the you stand before me as you come across as this like really sweet guy that's really genuine and, and really wants to put this, this like value that you have into the world. And when I hear your story and I hear the journey that you've traversed to, to get to this point, to come across this way, it's so inspiring. Like it's so, it, it really puts into context and, 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 and puts a light on, like, I, I don't, I think the last book that inspired me like this was um, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, right? Like seeing everything that he went through to become this dude, but he came out the other side like, yo, I'm David Goggins, right? Like you come out the other side as this like guy, I just want to hug, right? <laughs> like, and, and, and I just think it's really inspiring, man. Like, like you're, the, the way that you come across as like the representation of a man and, and, and what you've become is, is really cool. And I'm really, really, really honored that I got to have you on this stage and I get to share these moments with you. And I'm, and I'm pumped that we can be friends from here going forward and I can support your book launch and, and get involved in whatever you're doing, man. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Yeah. So I, I look forward to seeing where our friendship goes from here. For sure, man. So my last question is, you know, you've been, 
leader of these groups, you've been in gangs, you have, you have all these different things. And, and now you're in this different world. You are, it's COVID and, and you're out and all these things. Where do you nowadays find community? I find community on our Zoom events, our community connections. So yeah, like we do this thing at Defy and, and that was one of the things we implemented right away is uh, how do we still continue to build a community? So the first Thursday of every month, we have this thing called Community Connections and we get together. These are, it's a space to welcome home uh, the men and women that just got home, but also a space to provide for men and women that have been home for years and also for our volunteers that have gone into prison with us or been involved with uh, Defy Ventures. And we do this check-in called Roses and Thorns, where you talk about a rose in your life and a thorn in your life. And we do breakout rooms, small groups, and that's where I, I find my sense of community. That's beautiful, man. Thank you, Kwan. Thank you for this time together. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation right there as much as I did. Listen, Connect with Pablo is a content marketing community creation agency. The bottom line is that if you can start creating content that can give value to your customers or audience while creating strategic relationships through it, you can have a content machine that allows you to tell the story of your business through the value you are creating while gathering people together. If you're curious about that or know someone who could be, please shoot me an email at you should at connectwithpablo.com or hit me up on Instagram or LinkedIn through the profiles tagged in the show notes. If you just want a quick pick me up and some tactical advice right before walking into a room full of strangers, go to connectwithpablo.com, watch the five minute video about how to walk into a room and not feel like you're all alone and or download the little cheat sheet on how to do just that. I have a lot of my friends that I've done networking with me for a long time tell me that they love watching that thing and carrying it around when they're walking into a networking event or they're walking into a conference or sometimes even if you're just walking into a wedding and you don't know anybody, right? It has a lot of use for it. I invite you to check it out if you need it. I really hope you stick around, connect with me and start leaning into finding value in others and feeling like you have value to give yourself. It'll make the world a better place, I promise. Until the next episode, I am Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector.